Attention cannabis radio listeners. Do you suffer from chronic pain, anxiety, depression, or PTSD? These are the most common qualifying conditions for medical cannabis. Did you know that in many states you can visit a doctor online with no waiting rooms, no drive, not even an appointment needed? See a doctor right from your smartphone. It's fast, convenient, and it'll save you money as most states don't collect taxes on medical cannabis purchases. So what are you waiting for? Go to MarijuanaDoctors.com slash Cannabis Radio and get $5 off your on-demand medical card evaluation. Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. What's up, fellow canophiles, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. As always, I'm your host, Bobby Black. Well, it's almost Oscar season again, and one of the contenders for this year's coveted Best Picture Award is a film called The Trial of the Chicago 7, a drama about a group of anti-war activists who allegedly instigated a riot outside the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Arguably, the two most well-known of those activists were Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, founders of the radical anti-authoritarian leftist movement known as the Youth International Party, a.k.a. the Yippies. The Yippies advocated for the establishment of what they called the New Nation, an anarchistic counterculture community within the borders of, but independent from, the United States. Inspired in part by the Provo movement in the Netherlands, the Yippies employed absurdist pranks and street theater as a means to embarrass the establishment and call attention to their liberal causes, such as ending the Vietnam War and legalizing marijuana. Other prominent Yippies included White Panther founder John Sinclair, High Times founder Tom Fursad, literary satirist Paul Krasner, marijuana minstrel David Peel, Aaron the Pie Man K, and a man who was personally recruited by Hoffman and Rubin for his intellectual vision, Dana Beale. Beale was not depicted in the film, as he was a fugitive from police at the time and therefore unable to attend the convention, but was nevertheless one of the driving forces of the group's activism, eventually becoming the group's de facto leader after Hoffman and Rubin sold out and later died. It was Beale who organized most of the group's smoke-in protests throughout the 1970s and 80s, both in Washington, D.C. each Independence Day and in his adopted home of New York City. It was these early smoke-ins in New York that evolved into what are now known as the May Day Global Marijuana Protests. It's my honor to welcome to the show original member, leader, and historian of the Yippie Movement and founder of the Million Marijuana March, Mr. Dana Beale. Thanks for joining us today, Dana. How are you? I'm great. So let's, uh, I want to jump right in and get started at the beginning as I usually do. Uh, so you were born and raised in Ravenna, Ohio. I was raised in Michigan. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. We moved from the Kent State area up to Ann Arbor, later the scene of the hash bash, when I was three. Ah, okay. I, I apologize. That was... Uh, 
I misread something online then. <laughs> um, I, I grew up around in, in the vicinity of Lansing. My dad got a job working as the state archivist. That's historians that, in the family, and I, I now do a history of marijuana, which you guys should check out sometime. Absolutely, you know, and it's it's so uh, apropos that you would end up in in uh, Ann Arbor, Lansing area, because that, of course, became a huge hub for cannabis activism. Mm-hmm. So, um, tell me a little about your your childhood family life. What was it like? Oh, I don't know. I uh, I was a studious lad. I uh, lived in history books and 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 basically was trying to figure out the world I was in. Like now, looking back on us, I recognize certain stuff was more important uh, than other stuff that happened, right? But I grew up in the era of like with the fifties. Um, Eisenhower was uh, uh, president. Uh, my dad had fought World War II um, against uh, the Nazis, and he brought home a big pin from the Italian communists because he was in Italy. And so the important stuff, when I grew up, I, I remember the Korean War, and then I remember the Arne McCarthy hearings and um, the Civil Rights Movement. And then the Cuban Revolution, and Kennedy suddenly became president. That was really exciting to all the kids. This is a new young guy, right? He was yeah. very charismatic. He was a movie star. And, of course, we all know now, thanks to High Times, that he smoked pot. <laughs> he smoked pot for his bad back. He had medical issues that necessitated my good friend, Les Ledbetter, going out and getting him commander-in-chief quality weed <laughs> from the local, you know, um, purveyors. And um, uh, naturally, they couldn't be having that. I mean, there was a lot of other issues that were tied up in them. With it. You know, the, the botched invasion of Cuba, the, the uh, like, uh, fact that these people wanted to go into Vietnam really, really bad, and Kennedy already had made peace in Laos. So it was figuring, they were figuring he was going to neutralize Vietnam, right? No Vietnam War, no, no money for the military industrial complex. And not only that, um, of course, it was one of the major sources of opium in the world, right? With yeah. the, the Indo-Chinese uh, heroin trade. So all this stuff uh, would have uh, uh, never come to fruition, but then Kennedy was shot. And all the kids were, of course, crushed. Yeah. And we got this other guy in there, this guy, LBJ. We didn't really know we trusted him. And um, he did some good stuff, but he did go into Vietnam. And so when I came up, you know, right in the period of time when I came to New York and the uh, hippies were happening, and we did the first marijuana smoke in in Tompkins Park, uh, the big issue was the war. Yeah. We'll talk about New York in a minute, uh, but before that, I, I'd like to talk a little more about your younger days, because you got involved with activism even before you went to New York. In August of 1963, at the age of 16, you hitchhiked from your home to Washington, D.C. to hear Martin Luther King deliver his historic... Yeah, 63, yeah. yeah. Uh, can you tell us about that experience uh, of, of hitchhiking? Well, I mean, you just, you know, it's a hitchhiking trip. You get it all, you guys stick your thumb out. And you go, and I got there, uh, I had a place to stay, and I went the next day, and it was big. And I was there for the speech at the bottom of the monument, or the or bo bottom of the stairs, actually. I was up in front, I'm like, 
you know, Dana, he'll always get up in front. And um, basically, that was the thing that gave me the um, taste for going to the East Coast. And so I, I like, you know, before too long, I split <laughs> uh, Lansing area and went to New York City. Right. See, so so I went up made my exploratory trip of sixty three and sixty four. I moved to the East Coast. Well, when you were still in when you were still in Michigan, um, you uh, organized your first demonstration, right? Uh, after the Klan bombed yeah, that I church. Yeah, I did some stuff. I, I I was always, you know, big for organizing demonstrations. So I was the one who decided to apply civil rights tactics to the pot thing, and so we had the first smoke in. You smoke. Uh, you smoke for the first time at uh, MSU with a guy named AJ Weberman, right? Is that correct? Yeah, a- Weberman is still around, man. Yeah. I see him uh, not not infrequently, but he's still still checking. Yeah. And then at age seventeen, I read online that you actually were committed to a uh, mental uh, hospital. Is that right? How did that come about? Yeah. Well, that was that was uh, had something to do with trying to evade the draft. I gotta like admit that. Ah. Okay. I was not keen on being cannon fodder. But then you, you escaped from the hospital, right? Or you or you, you checked yourself out or whatever, and that's when well, you... Well, I, I, I checked out and legalized the status later. I decided <laughs> it was not for me. And that's that's basically when you went to New York, right, at that point? Yeah, but at that point, when I went to the draft board, right, I said, well, I have this thing, and they said, not oh, 4F. <laughs> so what made you want to go to New York? Right after I got to New York, you know, so I was 4F. Why did you pick New York? What made you want to go there? And, you know, I was going to the village. There are two places you can go. People weren't really into 8 Ashbury yet. Everybody was into Bleecker and McDougal. Remember, yeah. I ultimately moved into Bleecker Street. Yeah, yeah. And then, so you staged your first smoke-in was the Summer of Love, right? That was like, uh, I read that it was a Grateful Dead concert in Tompkins Square Park. Was that the first one? Yeah, yeah. There'd been a, a kind of a mini riot. It wasn't really a riot. It was more like a pushing and shoving thing. Uh, and we decided that what we wanted to do, um, to mellow things out was pass out free weed and it worked. <laughs> so, well, I, yeah, you were, you were, uh, passing out joints and throwing joints out from the stage, right? At that, at that dead show. No, that was a different, different time. That was Aaron later. No, um, no, we just passed stuff out in the crowd. How often were you doing these smoke-ins in New York? It sounds like you were doing a bunch of them. Well, we were doing them every week until you we ran out of weed. See, the thing is, the way it would work is at the end of the summer, at the end of the spring, <laughs> in you know, in New York, there would be weed, right? And then it would run out, and it would run out like around August, and there wouldn't be any weed. And then there would be some weed that would come in dribs and drabs, but it didn't really get going until the fall. You, you know the way it works. Yeah. Harvest, yeah, of course. Um, so I read that also that you were, uh, I, I mean, I know that you were influenced by the Dutch Provo movement, uh, and you had possibly read about yeah, them. Yeah, well, in- that was the thing. We adopted the Provos as our thing because the Provos did weed demonstrations. And the other people were like more like the diggers. They were do- doing stuff that was derivative of San Francisco. So they were more like in the free food. Yeah, and the Provos were pro-weed. Actually, we thought we were a little more political. Yeah, they were pro weed, and they were also uh, street street theater, like guerrilla street theater activism, was kind of their thing. Well, yeah, they did some stuff. They did one really significant thing. They threw money on the stock exchange. They went up into the you know the balcony and threw money down like dollar bills, and they totally disrupted everything. <laughs> with just dollar bills, you know. 
So they, there were some interesting things they did, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, but kind of like the uh, uh, culmination was the levitation of the Pentagon. And again, he got me to bring all the kids from the Tompkins Park smoking down to the Pentagon with a promise of four pounds of free weed, which we did provide. And that's how the Pentagon got le- levitated. <laughs> so, yeah, let's uh, let's get into that. When What was the circumstances when you first met Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin? What it was was there was a thing called this uh, the Gathering of the Tribes or something, the Tribal Council. And there was a thing called the group image, and they had like a band that really actually never went anywhere. But they fell apart because of money. You know, they, some people say you can't make money, and other people say you gotta make money. But anyway, they had a place on Sixth Street, and they would have these meetings, and that's where Abby showed up with the other people, a bunch of people who were like um, figures. You know, they they didn't really have so much. Like I met um, Ed. Uh, Sanders more just in connections with Tompkins Park. You led up Avenue A, and they had a place uh, uh, further east uh, called the Peaceye Bookstore. But I didn't know if it was still going at like 67. And that was where they had Lemar before any of this stuff happened. Mm-hmm. But um, see, the, I missed this guy because he was in prison. He was a guy I later hooked up, hooked up with was Howard Lotsoff. And Howard Lotsoff was like kind of on the same wavelength as uh, Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs. That is, they were looking for some kind of psychedelic drug that would get people off of heroin. And he told them about uh, Ibogaine in 1963 at the Peaceside Bookstore, but Allen had not and, and moved on to something different. He took like magic mushrooms, and it's actually recounted by Timothy Leary that he took magic mushrooms. And he said, "This is going to change everything." <laughs> well, you you uh, you were uh, you had gotten into acid a little bit. I read that you had tried it. Uh, and- oh yeah, well, this, this was a time period when we were doing acid. And what happened was, I was doing acid, and I liked it a lot, and. I got some acid that I was, you know, basically see to pick up girls, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, this guy, Kim Pong Sin, uh, claimed that, you know, he was, was hot shot and that he could get LSD. If I could just get him a little bit of LSD now, he could get me a lot of LSD next month or two months from now. He was a snitch, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I sold to him just my nine hits of acid. What a mistake. Yeah. Anyway, I got the article from it here. That, uh, 500 people um, marched across town to free me. It was actually around the 25th of August. I've got the article up here on the desktop of my computer. <laughs> yeah, August 67. You spell my name wrong. So uh. You can't find this because <laughs> my name is spelled Without an E A L, it's spelled I E L or something. Okay. I got it completely, completely wrong. So um, I had my 15 minutes of fame, and then, you know, after that was when we did the levitation of the Pentagon. And then around the end of the year, I got busted for pot. And I said, I didn't sell any pot. Well, I was selling pot, but I didn't sell any pot during the period of time I said I sold pot because there was no pot in that yeah. whole three-week stretch. There was just no pot. So 
I'm saying, these guys are making stuff up about me. So I got extremely paranoid and left town. But not before Abby Hoffman asked me to join the Yippies. And he asked me to join the Yippies around the 8th of January, 1968. And then I wasn't able to go to Chicago. Yeah, because you were, you were on the lam for almost three years, right? Yeah, well, I, was, I, I, I ended up in Canada, and then I ended up back in the Midwest, but in a place where I wasn't known to be. Like, they had no idea I had any connections with people in Wisconsin, and I knew some people who put me up in Milwaukee. And through the Milwaukee White Panthers, I ended up getting back in touch with the Yippies, and when the Yippies were relaunched in December of 1969, they merged with the White Panther Party, and I ended up being the field marshal. Now, the reason this is important is that after the um, kids got shot at Kent State, there was pending a big smoke-in at the Washington Monument on the 4th of July. I've been called by this guy, Ed Arrow. And I have the poster here. I got it from Peel Stuff. Which one was that? Yeah, I got it sitting right here. Huh? It- which which year was that from? It's from 1970. Is that the first? The very first smoke-in. The very first smoke-in in D.C. Eddie what? Arrow. They what? did a thing for it at the electric, uh, electric circus. It's like an heirloom. That, you know, nobody has this poster. Oh, okay. It's really something. Because this was the thing that caused Nixon to bug the Watergate. He got so freaked out. About the protest? That people opposed him after he shot the people at Kent State. He thought, this is going to quell these people and they're going to, like, shut up and, like, stop coming out, right? So there's a big, like, meeting with Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and the John Sinclair, I think, was still, was he still in jail. I'm trying to figure out when Sinclair got out. Anyway, the point is they decided not to do anything. Or actually, they just couldn't decide what to do. But me and Angie Weberman said, we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. And we rolled up these joints and put them in cigarette packs. <laughs> it makes no sense. But we brought them there, and we get there, and there was nobody there at the Washington Monument. But we started to open the pot up, and all of a sudden, hundreds of people appeared out of nowhere to smoke the weed. <laughs> and... Then some people said they're busting people down by the reflecting pool. So we all piled down towards the reflecting pool. By this time, we had a, quite a group of people, maybe a 1,000 people. And there are pictures of it. You can see us, and it's from the viewpoint of the Lincoln Memorial, which is where all the photographers were, because that's where uh, Bob Hope and all these like kind of like Almost World War II vintage people, right? We're out supporting Nixon, whereas it was this big group of people who are not intimidated by Kent State, and we're going to be like protesting the war. And everybody jumped into the reflecting pool and marched up the reflecting pool past the line of cops to right where the demonstration was and more or less shut it down by chanting. 
Wow. What were you guys and, chanting? And that was what happened to like Honor American Day, and Nixon freaked out. And I can get you the pictures of that. They're great. That's amazing. And so that... that was like really what I did that was like the one, you know, in other words, the Yippies supposedly had gone out of existence <laughs> immediately after Chicago. They got really paranoid, right? And so they didn't do anything for a period of time, and then they got indicted anyway in September of, like, um, 69, a year after Chicago, right? Yeah. And they had this big trial in Chicago. It's real famous. I mean, Sasha... Yeah, they just released a movie about it this year, too, yeah. Right. They just released a movie about... Chicago 7. I was uh, raising money for the defense. And (laughs) I got... uh, basically recruited to be on this new movement that came up during the trial. We're going to restart the Yippies because SDS had folded up and there was nothing to replace SDS. Can you explain SDS for the listeners? I was the head of the Yippies and when nobody else could figure out what to do, I I basically said, charge! (laughs) You know? (laughs) And we went ahead and had a big demonstration and disrupted Honor America Day and the anti-war movement kind of resumed without ever having missed a beat, even though we were shot at Kent State and at Jackson State. And just to clarify for our listeners real quick, the SDS that you're referring to is the Students for Democratic Society, which was uh, another leftist uh, activist group in the 60s. So go ahead, go on. Well, then then the next week, the next year, we decided to do it again. We did a second spoken, and we brought up the matter of the Vietnam heroin. Because what I had like noticed, and a lot of people had noticed, is when Nixon got in, the first thing he did was he shut off all the marijuana in this thing called Operation Intercept. So the days are just like walking like a couple kilos across the border in San Diego. That was gone, right? And uh, all of a sudden, or not, well, maybe not that suddenly, but it didn't take long. There was a lot of heroin around to replace the marijuana that wasn't there, right? And you kind of got the feeling that somebody somewhere has a plan to get all the hippies strung out on smack. Ah. So we were, you know, we were like, this was our issue, man. We're not only against the war, we're looking at the war as just a front for a big heroin dealing complex. You understand? Yeah. It's just a scam, you know? They're bringing it back in the body bags, you know? <laughs> yeah. So um, that led to, you know, the big uh, demonstrations in 72 in Miami, which I did with Tom Fursad. Yeah, all right. So just pause pause for a second because before we go ahead, I just want to, uh, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, we haven't really gone into exactly what the Yippies were, and I think it's important to to talk about that. So can you tell tell a little about what the Yippies, what the Youth International Party was, what it stood for, what its goals were, and, and what you did to achieve those goals? Well, the way it was, the way it worked was there were a series of youth groups that the newspapers and the television Followed with bated breath. What are they going to do next? <laughs> the crazies? <laughs> you know. uh, the point is, um, after the hippies, which was supposedly a political kind of peace of love, um, uh, Earth Day kind of thing, you know, they had these other people who were against the war and actually uh, were not willing to sit back and just let the war go. They were going to like actually stop business as usual. 
and they had the same style as the hippies, and they smoked pot, but they were definitely political. And that was the hippies. Yeah, and so there were a lot of a lot of the big counterculture icons of the time were affiliated with the Yippies. You mentioned John Sinclair. Uh, you you briefly brought up Tom Frasad, who we'll get to shortly, um, and then obviously Hoffman and Rubin. Um, who else? Paul Krasner was a big force, right? Who else was? Well, in the yeah, Yippies? but you know there was uh, uh, what's her name from um, Jefferson Starship. Grace Slick. Grace Slick tried to get into the White House and give Richard Nixon LSD. <laughs> She it's tried to dose him? Story. I don't think she was able to pull it off. <laughs> but she tried. So uh, Jerry Rubin and uh, Abby Hoffman, as we mentioned, uh, they were actually big fans of yours. They invited you to be part of the group. Um, and they they had actually said that you were one of the intellectual leaders. I guess some of the writings you had done might have influenced them. I, I, I read that you uh, wrote... Well, yeah, the thing is that, you know, we're trying to figure out there was a... I was kind of against the weather. Actually, I was against like buying the weather underground. You mean? Yeah, I said all you're going to do is create a big crackdown. I mean, look at what's happening now with the Trumpoids. All yeah. they did was create a big crackdown. We maneuvered ourselves in to a position where we're the establishment, you know, fending off these fascist madmen. Well, That's you, a much better position to be in. Yeah, well, you guys didn't use violence as much as you used comedy and, and, and you know, just absurdism, right? I mean, that was... Well, there were two things we used. We used weed. <laughs> weed itself turns out to be great. Yeah. Man, I wish we'd figured out the medical marijuana thing earlier. We could have started having marijuana brownies for AIDS in 1982. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, psychedelic drugs. And, you know, I hate to plug my thing, but... We came up with, you know, I asked the question to McGovern, or confront McGovern, I got the video of it, right? And I said, well, if our own government is going to be dealing with heroin, what can we do to protect the kids who are already using drugs from get everybody getting strung out of heroin? It's not fair. You understand? Yeah. So that's when Ed Rosenthal said Dana Beal should meet this guy, Howard Lossoff, because they're both interested in psychedelic drugs. They're not just into pot. And sure enough, this guy had something. He had a drug from Africa that nobody, well, I knew about it, but I didn't know anything about it. And it turned out it got people off of heroin overnight. But we didn't like actually adopt it as a cause until 1980 because everybody agreed that we we're just going to legalize pot right first. Right? Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Because there was a group of people over here that also wanted to legalize cocaine. And they kind of threw everything off. And we ended up having a situation where the drugstore of, you know, the Jimmy Carter White House, or the guy named Peter Bourne, yeah. got caught doing coke and got fired and it was replaced by the DEA, who was not a friend of harm reduction. Yeah, yeah. Problem is that guy would have been really like susceptible because of what we had to say, but we didn't know much about him. We let uh, people at normal handle it. And unfortunately, they were not very imaginative. <laughs> well, they just were not imaginative. So they didn't, well, to begin with, they didn't know what we had because we didn't tell them. And if we had told them, nobody would have believed it. But what I should have done was gone straight to Peter Moore and said, hey, you know, um, we found this interesting stuff that affects, you know, heroin withdrawal and 
a craving like nothing else we've ever seen. And, you know, you've got to look at this. Because he was the heroin doctor, mostly. He's one of these British guys that wants to legalize heroin. That's oh. how he got into the, the Carter White House. Yeah. Later, they started an organization called the Drug Policy Foundation. That came on the scene in 1986. It was a book uh, written by Arnold Trebach called The Heroin Solution. And what they pointed out is that actually heroin is in some ways safer than methadone. you got to take it a lot more frequently. <laughs> but methadone has some side effects that you don't really want. Heroin is relatively clean, as long as you don't put fentanyl in it and kill everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, it doesn't really have much to do with cannabis history, but I know this is that Ibogaine is something you've been passionate about for a long time. So we'll, we'll just, I just want to ask you about it and then we can move on. But, uh, what, so if it's so safe, I know you've been championing it for decades. If it's so safe, uh, and it's so effective, why, why hasn't there been more progress on it? Why is there so much pushback? Who is against it? Why is it not? Oh, well, I can tell you exactly who's against it because we went to the government and by the beginning of like the nineties. Uh, they had this big problem with crack, as you may remember. And we said, we have something that works for crack. Because Ibogaine doesn't just work for, for, for opiates. It works for alcohol, tobacco, and it works for stimulants like alcohol, uh, like uh, cocaine and methamphetamine. So they did a five-year program, and then they abandoned it because of pressure from the manufacturers of Suboxone. Last year, actually two years ago, Suboxone paid a $1.6 billion fine for lying and saying Suboxone is not addictive and that you could use it to detox. One in 12 people are able to quit heroin using a Suboxone taper. The rest of them just wind up being on Suboxone for the rest of their life. Suboxone is made from another ingredient of the opium poppy. You know that like uh, stuff uh, in Pulp Fiction where they shoot the guy yeah. in the heart and yeah. he gets up, right? That's from something called naloxone or naloxone. It's a blocker, right? And you, you probably are familiar with this. It's 200 times greater affinity for the opiate receptor than regular morphine products like heroin. So um, they made a, another drug that isn't a pure blocker, but it's a, what's called an agonist antagonist, so it has some high to it, called buprenorphine. And the buprenorphine, the problem was people were diverting it to the street, so they put a little bit of trexan in it, so that if you try to shoot it, it blocks the receptor, and you go into withdrawal, and you're horrible, horribly sick. But if, as long as you eat it, um, the Trexan isn't absorbed and you just get the, the dose of buprenorphine. And that is what everybody in the country is being put on. Right now, they passed a law in Oregon to have universal treatment. You may remember this law. They had two laws in Oregon. One was to legalize ma ma magic mushrooms for clinics. The other was to decriminalize drugs in general and increase treatment so everybody can get treatment. And they're taking money, they're taxing marijuana and taking the taxes for marijuana and spending it supporting 
This is Suboxone stuff. So the only treatment you can get because Ibogaine is illegal is one put out by Reckitt Benkheiser. But I guess we can take solace in the fact that Trump cut the Reckitt Benkheiser fine from $1.6 billion to, I think, less than less than less than point six less than six hundred million yeah so the uh, big pharma is not going to be put out of business <laughs> yeah of course um all right well uh, i'm going to take a quick break for a commercial uh now but please uh don't go anywhere because we'll be right back with more from yippee founding member dana beal here on canthropology Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. All right, and welcome back here to Canthropology. Our guest uh, this episode is Dana Beal, a founder of the Global Marijuana March and one of the founding members of the Youth International Party, a.k.a. the Yippies. So I want to go back uh, and talk. Uh, let's go back. You had mentioned Tom Fassad at one point during the uh, former segment. Um, and so I know that uh, you were friends with him. And uh, can you tell me a little about how you met him? Well, it was at the... Um rally that they had in Yale on the common immediately after the invasion of Cambodia. So this is the same period of time <clears throat> just before the Kent State shooting. And I met him because he had this special Cadillac tricked out as a stage. So people like David Peel could get up with his band on top of the, the, the stage that was on top of the car. And, and perform. You're talking about the medicine ball caravan, caravan thing? Yeah, that kind of period of time, right. That was summer of 70, I think, right? The medicine ball caravan. Were you yeah. part of that at all or no? Well, I apparently was for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1970 was the year that Tom Fursad, uh, who, for those who aren't, who don't know who are listening, Tom Fursad was the founder, eventual founder of High Times. Um, in 1970, he smashed the obscenity commissioner in the face with a pie and that became one of the signature uh, kind of protest moves of your of your movement. Um, and then after Tom was gone, I believe your friend Aaron Kay kind of picked up that torch and, and kept that tradition going and, and became the pie man. Can you tell us a well, little about all Tom that? Before Tom was gone, before Tom committed, Tom, Tom, Tom unfortunately uh, lost his best friend in an airplane accident, bringing in a shipment of weed. And... Um, Became very depressed, and um, well, when you're depressed, uh, don't do coke. He was also bipolar, I believe, right? Yeah, well, he shot himself, and um, the, the magazine never really recovered. It never had that spark of creativity again. But uh, what was Tom Fursad like um, as a friend, as a person? Well, he's a great guy, man. I really loved him. I wasn't really part of his inner circle, but some of these guys were not. They were not like giving him the right advice 
Because sometimes you got to hold back. Sometimes you got to not shoot yourself in the head. <laughs> and you, you guys formed your own little subgroup called the Zippies, right? Can you tell us what the Zippies no, were? No, he formed the Zippies while I was in jail. Oh, okay. Right. He signed a thing called the Zippy Manifesto, and and they had the, the the group that was one of the groups in Miami doing the protest. That was kind of a distinct group of yippies, other yippies from the Midwest, right, compared to the ones from L.A. and New York. But there were some people from New York also, like A.J. Weberman, right, who were with the yippies. At the end of the thing, we just decided we would, like, uh, fold up everything back into Youth International Party because Abby Hoffman ended up getting self-busted for coke. And had to go on the lamb. So they had nobody really to be their leader. And you kind of stepped in and, and took over it kind of. Well, that. with the three of us, yeah. you know, me and AJ and Tom stepped in. And Aaron was there, of course. And yeah. Steve D'Angelo, young Steve D'Angelo was there. Right, cool, yeah. What's So what was the difference between the Zippy and the Yippie? Was there a different philosophy or... Uh, they were more anti-imperialist and we were more anti-drug war. Ah, okay. But we said the drug war eventually is going to like prove to be decisive. And in the 19, in 2000, they had black, blackballed enough Florida voters, black voters, right. Who, you know, um, had been convicted of a felony and they had a million people who were felons for drugs in Florida. And even though on paper the Democrats never should have lost, George Bush barely eked out a victory against Al Gore. And then we, of course, we went into war in Iraq because of that. Yeah. It never would have happened if Gore had been president. Yeah. So to say that, you know, that anti imperialism is not really. They're just all disconnected from the war on drugs, even though it's, it's like one government, you know? Yeah. Bullshit, you know? Yeah. Wait, so... I remember the Vietnam heroin. I remember the Contra cocaine from Nicaragua and that whole mess. Okay. So you can't tell me it's not all connected. And right now, they're fucking like huge amounts of heroin are being generated and flooding the world coming from Afghanistan. Yeah. So uh, Farsad uh, founded High Times in 1974. That's when the first issue was published. Were you around when that was being uh, created? When... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, see, the whole time that was when I was selling weed for him. And I was putting out my magazine with the money that I was making, but I was getting the weed from Tom. <laughs> there was another guy in the city that, was, that we were getting some stuff from. And um, I was getting weed from Tom, so I was like a regular... I saw him every night, man, after work. He would open up the weed and pour him. <laughs> what was it like when the, around that time when High Times was first coming out? Was there a lot of, uh, I mean, was there cool parties, a lot of cool stuff going on? Well, it's always cool stuff going on. <laughs> I would say, you know, Ed Rosenthal was more prominent in the beginning than it was later. And the magazine um, you were doing was Yipster Times, right? That was your magazine? Yeah, yeah. He was basically stealing all the people that I would like hire. <laughs> He went, I was the farm team for high times. So in May of 
1973 is you organized the Yippie Smoke In in Washington Square Park. Uh, you had uh, reportedly a 30-foot fake joint made from a sewer pipe. Um, what made you move the event from Tompkins Park to Washington Square Park? Well, it was a march up Fifth Avenue to Central Park for many years. It was a Fifth Avenue pop parade, and that was stolen from the Fifth Avenue Peace Parade. Yeah, so was that that event was basically the direct precursor of the May Day Parade well, that would the, come the later. Well, the thing is, we still have. I can show you a picture of the next year. It's huge. It was a big thing, man. It was a big ass demonstration. That was the reason why the people. It was a little. Uh, Rump group of people that like never like accepted the doing the smoke ins uh, around Abbey, who um, but they just really upset because we were successful. And later they tried to like fucking you know foster more disunity when we did the bring Abbey home benefit at the felt forum in '78, 10th anniversary of Chicago. We kept Abby from going to prison for, for life, man, for, for um, three kilos of coke. We got him off with, you know, eight months in rehab. Wow, that's great. So so that, that, that March, uh, the New York-Washington uh, Square in 1973, we actually have uh, an original poster for that event in our museum collection. Uh, it was printed by Community Press, and it features a bunch of cartoon-drawn characters getting high, and it's listed as the Gathering at High Noon for National Marijuana Day. Do you happen to remember anything about this poster, who the artist was, or who put it together? Uh, do you know, do you know the one I'm talking about? I sent you a picture of I, it. I, I'm not sure I can visualize it. AJ would know. It's uh, it's got the Freak Brothers on it. It's got the Zigzag Man on it. It's got a bunch of different cartoon characters. Uh, Uncle Sam's holding a machine gun. Yeah, I think I seen that. I seen that recently, actually. So that's from '73. Uh, it was also in 1973 that you first moved into Nine Bleecker Street, right? '73, the building yeah, off the Barry. Yeah, in, in August of '73, yeah. And that would, uh, and that became your home for 30 years, and ended up becoming the Yippie Museum and Cafe. No, until uh, 2014, 50 years. Wow, that's a long time. So yeah, the Yippies continued to hold smoke-ins across the country throughout the 70s and 80s. I read that the first ever concert by the New York Dolls was a benefit to raise funds for your marijuana arrest. Is that true? Not sure, but could have been. At that time, we were working somewhat more with Peel. We worked with Peel on and off all through those years. You talk, let's mention a little about David Peel. Uh, he was he was a, a friend of mine as well, and uh, you know we miss him. Um, can you tell us a little about David Peel, how you met him, and, and what your relationship with him was? Well, originally I met him, and he was kind of a little bit like into kind of a Black Sabbath uh, type trip, but then he changed, and he was actually changed by the pop movement, and he became more wholesome, <laughs> right? And more like, you know, well, more like, say, like a Jack Herrera kind of vibe. And that was, that was, you know, because, you know, we basically had the thing, we had the thing of life, life drugs, death drugs. We were always saying, pot, this pot is really harmless. Why is it even illegal? It's like fucking medicine. It shouldn't be illegal. And, you know, eventually we won that argument in general. All right, we're going to take another quick break now, but please uh, don't go away because we're going to be right back with more from Dana Beal on Canthropology. 
Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA free and lead free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. All right, and welcome back to Canthropology. Once again, our guest this week is Dana Beal, founder of the Yippies and the Mammalian Marijuana March. Um, So we were talking a little before the break about... Uh, the different smoke-ins and, and of course, the New York uh, uh, cannabis smoke-in that eventually uh, became the Cannabis uh, uh, March. Um, We have a couple other items in our museum collection that I wanted to kind of just talk to you about. Um, We have a a, a button, uh, a Stop 1984 and 1976 button that lists the dates for the New York rally and a Kansas City rally, and it has the official Yippie logo on it, which is a black background with a five-pointed red star, and a green cannabis leaf on top. Um, who came up with that logo, and what was the significance of it? Probably um, the person most responsible for is John Sinclair. And there was also the seed, the Chicago seed had something to do with it. I can't remember the name of the guy from the Chicago seed now, but uh, yeah, it was something, a, a letter from a person, actually, I think, from John Sinclair. Oh, Okay. We also have an original flyer from the 1978 smoke-in in Washington, uh, which was actually a four-day-long protest march. Uh, the first day was to stop spraying of Paraquat. That was on July 1st. And then there were marches to the Capitol on the 2nd and the 3rd. And then a smoke-in at the White House on July 4th. Do you remember anything uh, special about that particular event in 78? Yeah, that was uh, the big... Because we had like a big event in 77. And that we did a movie... Um, called Smoking, and we kind of embroidered on it and, and made it, well, if we could do this event over and if we could like put a day on introducing it, what would it be like? And Paraquat had become a big issue um, because of um, normal uh, picking up as, a, as an issue, and people were outraged, you know, like, they would take something as like benign as marijuana and poison it to get to keep people from doing it and then make everybody have to worry about whether the pot they were getting had paracord on it or not. So um, we did uh, some, I think people got arrested at the Mexican embassy or something. Then they still, um dumped paracord on the lawn of the Mexican embassy. And uh, in normal, they kind of like, they got so upset, they somehow let out the information about Peter Bourne, right? They were under pressure from the yippies and the street protesters to do more. And that may have been a pretty big mistake, actually, because that led to Peter Bourne being fired, which was not in the interests of, uh, of weed. 
Yeah. So uh, at some point uh, over the course of the evolution of the New York Smoke-In, it got it underwent kind of a rebranding into the May Day uh, Parade and Global Marijuana March. Can you explain a little about how that evolution well, happened? Well, this had to do with Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Rudy Giuliani actually created the worldwide marijuana movement as a reaction against Rudy Giuliani. He shut down our event after 26 years and, you know, basically arresting people for even getting up and announcing that it was canceled. But we moved from Washington Square Park down to Central, uh, down to Battery Park, and we reversed the course of the parade so we could still have a parade down Broadway. And we called for a worldwide marijuana march to support the proposition that marijuana is a political issue. It's not just a lifestyle issue for which you have no rights. That you have a right to medicine and you have a right to engage in ordinary harmless behavior that bothers no one. Which is, you know, the recreational component. Yeah. And we hooked up with the people over in Britain and the first year we did well, the first year we called for it was 1998, because we were being canceled in 97. And we called for a worldwide event in May of 99. And we were able to do it in conjunction with the people in London and in a lot of other cities. And it grew every year for about four years until it got to be around 312 cities. I got to actually go back and, and check and find out how it Yeah, yeah. It was more than 300. And we were big in Toronto. We were big in, in, in um, Buenos Aires. For a while, we were big in San Francisco. We were big in a lot of places. Prague. We're still pretty big in Prague. It's now coordinated out of, out of Vienna, actually, the Worldwide March. Really? So it's largely in Spanish and German. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I knew it was held on the first Saturday of May each year. And then also for, for a period, you it was also uh, co-branded kind of with Cures Not Wars. Can you explain what Cures Not Wars is and well, what was the affiliation? Cures Not Wars parade here. We call the parade here Cures Not Wars because it, it encompassed psychedelic drugs and not just pot. And we're actually talking about going back to that because now all the people from normal are into psychedelic drugs. And for a while, they wanted to be the cannabis parade, but... It might be Cures Not Wars again, or it might have both names. I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, one more item we have in our collection was actually from the 2001 uh, Space Odyssey poster from the 2001 March, yeah. which lists all the cities that were participating in. It's it's quite a lot, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a that's one of the cool posters. So that so the first one was actually 99. Well, you'll notice that the space it has a little uh, a little mushroom in the upper corner of the poster. You see the mushroom there? Yeah. Oh, I do see it, yeah. <laughs> see, so there's a space, you know. It's a reference to the space, you know. Psychedelic, uh, space-style space, or psychedelic. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, I actually started going to your rallies in the park uh, when I was in high school, probably around 88 or 89. Uh, my friends and I used to go just sit in the grass and smoke weed, listen to rock music on our boombox or play guitar and check out all the cute hippie girls and stuff. And we were just amazed by it. Like we could not believe that so many people were just sitting around getting high out in the open and the police for the most part just, they, they left us alone. They were only really going after dealers at that point. You know, if they saw you selling, they caught you selling, they would bust you, but Mostly people were just smoking peacefully and hanging out like and to us that was the closest to the 60s that we had ever experienced and it was like utopian for us and it was amazing and then I do remember very distinctly that that all changed under Giuliani. Well what we were saying is that that, that like reality has already existed and now we're breaking through to it in more and more places and pot is just normal and it's accepted that pot is safer than alcohol and tobacco that you probably you want to live longer, <laughs> not develop all kinds of health problems. Maybe you should drink a lot less and smoke weed instead. Yeah. Then, they completely quit everything, right? Yeah. They're not prohibitionists. But you probably would be better to smoke pot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, of course, I started working at High Times in 1994. Uh, and then, I, I, of course, I continued to go to the march, uh, you know, as when after I worked at High Times. And that's kind of around when I met you. It was probably like mid to late 90s. Um, I used to march with David Peel and and, uh, and and Rick Cusick was there with us a lot of times. And I know Aaron Kay was there most of the time and Steve Bloom. Um, you were you stayed friends and made good, uh, you know, maintained close relationships with a lot of the High Times uh, people over the years. Also, Steve Hager and, and John Holmstrom as well. Can you talk a little about your relationship with High Times and, and the people there? Well, I just, you know, they're part of the panoply of people I know in um, the weed movement. And I guess now the psychedelic movement. And, uh, you know, there's some really great people. I, I like some regimes better than others because of uh, common interests. Uh, I really like Peter Gorman. Yeah, Peter's a nice guy. He's Peter's a, very a good cool guy. guy. You know, I always felt Hager was somewhat uh, competitive. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. So in 2004, uh, I read that the Yippie Museum was legally chartered by the Board of Regents of New York. Um, but then, yeah, yeah. but then in summer 2013, the cafe closed and the building was foreclosed and sold. So what happened? Was it just the, yeah, the I rent? Yeah, went to prison, man. Basically, we lost our money. We got busted right before we were going to buy the building. We had the money almost to buy the building and got fees. And then I went out and tried to get the money back, and I got busted, and I went to jail. And it's a sad story, but a lot of great projects of the marijuana movement have been destroyed by the man. Yeah, you know. Um, and, you know, now people are people who say I never even was a yippie. What? It's a little hard. I was, I'm in the books, too. So it wasn't just a building. But, yeah, it would be nice to have a yippie museum again, I'll tell you that. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you what what happened to all the archives and memorabilia when it closed? Um, because uh, we would be Alice very. Torbush has some of it in in Maryland. Who I ha... have some of it somewhere up upstate, you know, but uh, mostly it's just junk furniture and stuff. Well, I mean, what uh, about I don't the? Know what happened to the archives? You know, I think Alice has them if they're any if they're anywhere because you know these guys moved in and a lot of stuff went to a dumpster. Oh, who who has it? Who has stuff? Alice. Okay. Somebody has called. Uh, I can give you her number. You can 
check it out and track down the thing. I know some. Oh, Mike Chance has a bunch of stuff in a shed up in uh, in uh, fucking Woodstock. Really. You know, I'm just saying yeah. we we would love to try to get a hold of one or two like really cool special items for the museum. I mean, we're going to have a a, a yippy uh, little exhibit in the museum when we open it, and uh, anything like really special that that might have survived, we would love to try to get a hold of that for the museum. Okay, we'll see what I can do. Great. Um, so you you brought up uh, that you had gone to prison, so I, I kind of have to bring up the next thing on my thing, which was uh, you've had a lot of uh, recent legal troubles. I mean, you're no stranger to being arrested. I I, I don't even know. Well, no, what happened was in the prison, you know, um, they gave me milk. And I had contracted something with my heart from smoking bad weed. you got to be careful about smoking weed with fungus on it. And uh, I was doing milk every day, and I got sicker and sicker from just from doing milk. And finally, I'm being transferred to prison, and I fall over dead. And I was dead for three and a half minutes, and they came in and revived me, but they had to take me to the hospital uh, 45 miles away, and they had to send somebody from the jail to sit there all the time. So they gave me a bond so they wouldn't have to pay for the uh, double bypass because they had to put me on induced coma for six days, which is thing where they freeze you, they lower your body temperature. Yeah. So that the uh, enzymes don't attack your brain. And uh, I woke up after... Uh, a week, I didn't know what happened first, you know, it's just, a, you know, whatever it was, it was really serious. And um, I ended up never having to pay for the double bypass anyway, because I went to jail. Yeah. I was out of jail, but I was like disconnected from everything. I couldn't go home to New York. I couldn't work. I couldn't like make money. So after four and a half months, I turned myself back in to get it over with. And I went to jail for two years. When I got out, everything was lost. Mm. Well, how, how's, your, how's your health been now? Are you, doing, are you doing any better? Are you doing okay? Well, I'm working on this thing. Um, I'm working on an Ibogaine company. You know, Howard Lotsoff had a company, and he, his friend Bob took it over. And then Bob got Alzheimer's, so there's this kind of remnants of a company, and I I'm starting to sort of psychedelic company like everybody else. I don't want to have to schlep weed. It's going to go out. Basically, there's going to come going to be a point where, where weed is legal. Yeah. Everywhere. Well, you better have something to do for a living at that point. <laughs> I'm starting an Ibogaine company. Great. That's awesome. So you obviously been arrested many times in your life, mostly for protests, but in over the past decade or so, you were actually been arrested on marijuana charges at least four times, Illinois, Nebraska, well, Wisconsin, California. Those, none of those. See, the thing is that since I got out of jail, they can't put me back in jail. Those arrests have the significance of a traffic ticket. Like the one that the guy made a big deal about and got it over the country, John Penley. I ended up getting the same penalty as if I'd have a traffic infraction. Wow. So they don't count. You don't go to jail. You don't go to prison. They forfeit the bond or something. And 
and you're on your way. Wow. So you, it's impossible to go to jail for pot. That's how I know legalization is actually coming. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have any more charges pending. You're 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 clean with them at this point. I don't know. I mean, I could have somewhere. <laughs> for instance, uh, I, we were stopped and they took all the weed. And later they gave the money back, but they didn't give the weed back. And when we got to court, they said, they should have sent you here today. This is not one we do out of state cases. You're not on the, you're not on the calendar. And we were never on the calendar. He just took the weed. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. They're like phantom bus. There's no thing where you actually go to prison. You don't get out. You don't get out of jail. They don't give you bond. You sit there for months and months. You fucking get used to jail food. None of this stuff. So did you just keep, do you think you kept getting busted because they were keeping tabs on you or just because you had bad luck? Oh, uh, no. It was a, in some ways, it was just a guy who was driving. He had to quit, ultimately. It's just the way it works. Let's see what happens. Yeah. So are you still involved with the are you still involved with the march or no? With what? With the march, with the annual march. Oh yeah. Well yeah, kind of as a um folk figure, more not having to put it on so much. Oh, okay. Despite all you've been through and, and, and everything, the the arrests, the the jail, the, the heart attack, everything else, you're still out there. It seems like you're still out there fighting, uh, fighting the good fight every year. What you know, what keeps you going? Why do you keep doing it? You gotta keep myself occupied. <laughs> no, no crazy. retirement, no retirement plans. <laughs> no, man, there is no retirement. I have no money. I, the only thing I have is uh, is like fucking. I know a lot of stuff. I'm actually an expert on this one subject, and so I get. Every so often, I get invited to a conference and I give my hour lecture. So, as someone who's been at the heart of cannabis activism for decades, uh, what's your take on the current state of? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty hopeful about legalization. When do you predict well, you'll we'll see it legalized? I think that's the interesting thing. The tipping point came when there were more people, like a lot more people, with sixty-eight percent or something who support legalization than people who are dead set against any form of legalization. I think it's 68% support recreational, 34% support medical, and 8% are against it under any circumstances. Well, obviously, it makes a whole lot of... It just makes more sense in that circumstance to get rid of the 8% that are against it because they're just standing in the way of progress, and they're troublemakers. But yeah. the thing is, even 8% of the population is a lot of people to arrest. So, if you want to change from arresting people for marijuana to arresting people who are against marijuana, who do you go after? you got to like be somewhat strategic, right? Because <laughs> you don't have endless... Actually, as you can see right now, they can't really arrest people that fast. Well... It's, it seems to me we like... Have a, we have a situation where the House passed marijuana in December, right? Mm-hmm. The Senate is about to pass it shortly, we're told. Of course, you know, we could still be... Suffer a massive letdown, and they can say, no, we're not going to do it. But I just don't think they're going to do that. I think they are going to do it. So who are the enemies of pot who matter? 
They're the people trying to stop that. In other words, whoever is trying to stop the Senate right now from passing a marijuana law are the people that we have to concentrate on uh, neutralizing. Yeah. So what we're saying is that by rounding up the perpetrators of the January 6th insurrection, we are arresting the people against pot. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, the, the, you know, kind of the insane Trump faction are the only thing that the people like Chuck Grassley and Mitch McConnell have to stop it. These people around Kevin Sabat don't seem to be able to stop anything. Oh, that guy. Ugh. They're, they're trying all over the place, but they're failing. The only place they wanted was in New Zealand. Yeah, so where would you recommend people, young people or, or whoever who wants to get involved with the uh, with the effort now, where, where would you recommend people go uh, to get involved and in, in online for information? Any sites that you that you have up or anything? I don't know. You might like get involved with this decriminalized nature thing. We're trying to pass a, a law in New York State to uh, mandate research, all research agendas to look at different psychedelic drugs for different medical uh, indications. I I would say the the one thing that you can do is kind of um, encourage the idea that maybe Merrick Garland, who's coming in now, is going to be the Attorney General, should somewhat prioritize cracking down on white supremacists uh, uh, in the police who are, like, connected to Russian disinformation attempts. Therefore, really, arguably, foreign agents, as opposed to cracking down on marijuana. I mean, don't you think that the people who try to pull a fascist takeover of our government are a bigger threat than weed? <laughs> of course. I mean, and, you know, there's been lots of protests in the past. You guys have, you know, done smoke-ins and, and went to the Capitol in the White House, but nobody ever tried to violently overthrow it. You were just trying to make a point. Yeah, so the point we're trying to make here is they don't have bandwidth to have a war on weed. You know, the war on drugs is just no longer like at the top of the list of things, you know, of the country, you know? Yeah. They have a real Nazi problem. And it's the job of the federal government to get rid of Nazis. Yeah. They're not supposed to come back. We defeated those fuckers. Yeah, it's terrifying. I can't, I can't even believe it. It's, so, it's become so prominent again. So I would say just, you know, like put that out consistently as a position. If you are a pot guy out there, say, what are you insane? <laughs> no. <laughs> they have to shoot at you or something? <laughs> yeah. Well, Dana, um, I, I greatly appreciate you spending time uh, with us today to share your story and help educate the younger generation about uh, all the crazy shenanigans and sacrifices you and your yippee uh, compatriots have gone through to get us where we are today. There's no doubt that you are one of the most important figures in our culture's history, and it's been a real honor having you on the show today. Anyway, I got somebody trying to call me another phone. All right, well, I wish you the best, my friend. Be well. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Dana Beal. Uh, quite the character, uh, as you can probably guess if you've ever seen a, a photo of him 
with his uh, trademark Mark Twain mustache and uh, cowboy boots outside his jeans. Uh, but seriously, uh, just one of the real deal OG uh, activists in the cannabis world. Uh, really, really happy to have him on the show. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of yet another episode of Canthropology. For more information on the World of Cannabis Museum Project or to read our Canthropology blog, please visit our website at worldofcannabis.museum. If you'd like to contact us, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click the subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'd like to give a quick shout out to our amazing media partners, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and Leaf Magazine. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again next time here on Canthropology. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.